Um, today's message is kind of more of almost a devotional, you might say. Um, I'm going to preach, of course, because I'm up here and I'm supposed to preach when you're up here, right? Um, but the, the verses themselves could be very much of a meditative, almost uh, devotional type of message. And I would like to say that today's message is about those times in our lives when, when, the, when we're doing all of those good things, right, Joey? All those good things that you guys as elders are intentional about, but also looking beyond just the good things, right? Because good things can sometimes actually become bad things because we lose sight of the best thing. Amen? That's what today's message is about because many times it's so easy to come here on a Sunday morning and find the best thing. And the moment we're out, it's like we go back to the good things. And we kind of forget about the best thing. Luke chapter 10, and just so you know that I am entering into the 21st century, for the first time in my entire career, I don't have a physical Bible in front of me. And I kind of feel like I needed to repent of that. <laughs> but I got this electronic Bible in front of me, and I'll be reading these verses from there. Follow along, if you would, and thank you to the uh, Stephen um, Bill for, I, I just gave him some stuff to throw up there this morning, and uh, for them making that adjustment quickly. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, and indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So we're just going to break these verses down, going to open them up and look at them. The context here is, as you know, Jesus and his disciples um, they didn't have their one place to go every evening, right? They didn't go home from work after each day, right? They moved about from town to town, village to village. They were on the move. I would love to have known exactly how all those dynamics about, you know, brushing teeth, getting food, Toileting issues, you know, all of that. How did that work out back then? But here's Jesus and his disciples, and then generally you get this sense, an entourage of other people, many times other women coming along and maybe helping serve and 
prepared to, I don't know. But so this is kind of the context that we have. And in this particular case, Jesus is going to the home of Martha, which is kind of unique. It wasn't to the home of John or to the home of James, which would have been normal. So it's the home of Martha. So maybe Martha was widowed. We don't know. But this was her home. And of course, we know Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus from the story of raising Lazarus from the dead, correct? So it's this home that we're going to. What's interesting in John's account in the story of Lazarus, John refers to Mary and Martha and Lazarus as, the, as those that Jesus loved. So there's a closeness here. In other words, Jesus knows this home. He's familiar with these people. He knows where he's at. It's a comfortable setting for him. I think we can read into that without doing any injustice to this passage. And um, so Jesus had this close relationship with them. Jesus loved them. And there was something special about this rapport that he had. And undoubtedly, some of the impetus or the angst that was going on inside of Martha, because she knew Jesus and she wanted to do right by him. And who knows, was it more than Jesus and his disciples? There may have been others there. So it might have been quite a little gathering. We're uncertain. And at first glance in this situation, you know, you got, okay, Jesus' disciples coming over, hanging out, having a meal, back to that food thing, right? And it's kind of a benign situation, just, just kind of another day in the life of Jesus. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, uh, there's something wrong with this picture, there's a woman over there where Jesus is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Well, we're like, whatever, Mark. I mean, that's not unusual, is it? Well, it was during this time. It really was because if you remember the Apostle Paul talking about himself and what did he do to become the great man of faith that he became within Judaism, uh, becoming the Pharisee of Pharisees, well, he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, right? So it's the same concept, the same wording that, the, that Saul at that time sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, he was going to school. He was, he was taking classes at Harvard, you know, because Gamaliel was one of the top, and there was this kind of prestige to this. So for Saul, later on the Apostle Paul, to sit at the feet of Gamaliel was kind of like this, you know, his mama was like, my son's, you know, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Thank you very much. My son's going to Harvard. That's an apprenticeship. So that you can become like the master. And they had those pockets within Judaism at that time. And so for Mary to be sitting at the feet of Jesus is something that women weren't supposed to do. 
uh-uh, thank you very much. You can't go to school. You can't get higher education. You can't become the, you can't ascend to the master, Mary. You're out of order. And it doesn't say anything about anyone else other than Martha in this situation. But I bet you there were some men in there going, Crinkling up their noses, just looking at her, just waiting for her to get the message by the stink eye, all right? Get that woman out of there, get her into the kitchen. So Martha now kind of takes center stage as she comes into this story, and um, she's got this problem. And the problem is, is that this person isn't cooperating with something that's really good. I mean, come on now, if Jesus and the disciples wouldn't have got a good meal out of this situation, they'd have probably been disappointed and a little frustrated and and mad, right? Because we want to get a meal out of this. So Martha takes this to heart. But her problem is, is that someone's not cooperating with her agenda. Do you have anybody in here ever have that problem in your life? That there's something going on and it's a good thing and the people around you just ain't really cooperating with you. They're not seeing eye to eye. They're in misstep with your timing and with what's going on. In service for Jesus, it is very easy to lose focus on Jesus. And without realizing it, we can allow our salvation to be found in our service rather than in his sacrifice. Or as Peter Fry states, God's not looking for masterful servants. He's looking for servants full of the master. Amen. Now, nowhere in this passage do we have any sense that Jesus is downplaying the importance of the meal. He knows they got to eat. That's just part of life. It's work that, that does need to get done. But what Jesus does do is that he actually keeps or elevates something that's more important than the physical meal. Jesus is more important, I mean, for Jesus, he's actually more focused on keeping our service in its proper place and keeping our motives pure while we go through the service. Jesus cares about our hearts. Isn't it sobering to know that this morning in your service to the king, coming to church and being here and being present, isn't it sobering to know that you really aren't here? So when Carissa said, don't you sing this unless you really mean it, I'm like, yes, because we need that. We need to remind ourselves that we need to get out of ourselves 
from time to time. And like I said, even this morning, I could be up here preaching a message in these lights and have you all listening to me and it not be in its proper place. Now, signs that we may be losing our focus on the master and getting back to Martha as Jesus is working on character development with Martha, with Martha is that the first sign is she's like, Lord, don't you care? So doubt begins to weasel in into our thinking. When things aren't going our way and we find ourselves a little discombobulated, one of the first things that we intrinsically, emotionally, maybe if not mentally, but maybe emotionally, is, is that instinctually we go to this concept that if things aren't working and things are going bad, then does Jesus really care? I mean, because if Jesus cares, then things would be working out, right? It would be working better for us. But does Jesus really care, or is Jesus just kind of over here passively standing by, unengaged? And it's ironic, isn't it? Martha calls him Lord. And then she turns right around and she's judging him for not doing or getting on to Mary the way that she thinks he ought to do. And so she begins to illicitly judge like she knows exactly how things should be in that moment and that time. And come on, people, and even you, Jesus, step up a little bit because we need to get things in order here. Now, we can chide Martha all we want to at this point, um, but I think we know better, don't we? How many times have we become distraught and forgotten who Jesus really is when things go wrong? When life goes sideways, when grief comes in like a flood, like when maybe a loved one dies, for example, or when we feel overwhelmed or bewildered, when people don't do what we want them to do or they do what, you know, they do the things that they shouldn't be doing and it affects us. Does Jesus care? Does Jesus care? Is there any situation in this, this morning that's in your life? Are there situations, are there, con are there things within you that you're not sure about how Jesus feels about what you're going through? It's a very real question. And especially when life seems to be mundane or we can't seem to get ahead of things or there's pain or there's hurt and all of these various issues going on. Coming to terms with does Jesus care is paramount. And, and she goes on, tell her to help me. She even becomes demanding. And in our mind, we start developing all these scenarios of how 
we become insistent in, in, in how these things should be in our lives. And we don't want them because it hurts. It's not comfortable. It's not where we want to be. And so, and so we start, you know, God, you, yeah, God, please, you know, do this and do that. And sometimes our requests turn into demands. And that's what's happening here with Martha. She starts becoming demanding. And in the middle of that, then she also becomes dismissive towards Mary. I mean, here she is. She, You know, there's no indication. Hey, Mary, I, you know, I'm over here. Could you come? No, she, she goes over Mary's head. <laughs> she pulls, you know, like, I, I want to talk to the manager. Who runs this place? Because obviously you guys don't know what you're doing. So I want to talk to someone who's in charge. Oh, you're the manager? Well, let me tell you. I have something to tell you. No, 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 no. We live kind of in that, that cultural kind of stand up and become righteously indignant, you know, and demanding, dismissive. That's not so often far from us good Christians, is it? We can quickly become the same way. Bottom line, have we become off-centered to the point of where we have become mesmerized, so to speak, by the distractions around us, by the doubts that go through our mind? Are we engaging in illicit judgments of situations that we find ourselves in rather than deferring to Jesus? Are we mesmerized by the darkness all around? See, all of these things are distractions that Satan wants to use to get us off the main thing. Jesus is wanting us to develop trust and faith and we're off trying to figure things out in our minds. And then Jesus finally steps up here. And I love, I love this. <laughs> you know, because if, if I'm Jesus, you know, I'm like, hey, Martha. <laughs> Martha. That's not we ha what we get here. And Jesus responds with Martha. Martha. Martha has just insulted his character. The son of God. The very one who's keeping her together, who allows her to be able to breathe her next breath. She insults his character. And he just simply turns around with Martha. Martha. And if, if you study this in scripture, there's like 15 other occasions where God is interacting with others and he calls out their names twice. And in those, those situations, it's always used in the, it's like, you know, Adam, Adam, Abraham, Abraham. In all of those situations, in situations, it's used to indicate a deep personal relationship of affection. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, if I'd have been Jesus, I'd have, I said, yeah, I'm the manager. And let me tell you how this works around here, young lady. Let me tell you about this little adjustment in your attitude that you need. Let me tell you about all this little judging me that's going on. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about this, Martha. Don't you know? No. We need to be reminded from this story that God loves to correct us and set us on a right path with just a look or just the mention of our names, right? Remember Peter? After he denied Christ, he got one look from Jesus and was broken. I don't know. I guess I got just enough macho in me that, you know, for real correction, you need a little bit of heat on your backside a little bit, right? You need someone to kind of, whoo, oh, that hurts a little bit. That stings just a little bit. And you know what? God will use circumstances in life in terms of correction that does sting at times. I'm not taking that away. But uh, there's also something about the Father's heart that loves nothing more than just simply to say, Hey, Mark, Mark, what's going on in that heart of yours? What's going on in that head of yours? And then Jesus defines the real problem. Martha, you are worried and upset. Worried. And um, yeah, if you could switch to this other slide, if you were able to get that up, Stephen, that'd be great. Worried. From the Greek word uh, merinma is to be anxious about. Um, and then troubled conveys, I'm not even going to try the Greek word on that, it conveys the idea of hearing the noise of a crowd, but not being able to isolate one voice, right? So you're troubled, and you're trying to tune in, and you're trying to hear, and you're trying to get it right, but the more you try to get it right, the more confusing that crowd noise just becomes. It becomes kind of this roar of things and you can't hear clearly in the parallel verse of first peter 5 5 it says cast all your cares or your anxiety upon him because he cares for you so in this first word use of the word care or anxiety it's it's the word care is often used because that's what it means, anxiousness, fear, anxiety, or worry. Whereas the second part of that is because he cast all your cares, all your merma upon him, all that anxiousness, all that confusion, all that unsettledness, because he cares mellow, because he mellows you. This use of the word refers to how we are of interest to God and the care of God in his paternal love. If this were a literal Greek translation from this verse, it would be, for to him, it is an object of care concerning you. 
so what we see is every time you're in a situation and life is going like this, Jesus cares. The issue is not does Jesus care. The issue is, is are we able to be pulled into trusting him for what's going on? Are we able to listen to him and respond to him in terms of what's going on? It's never about Jesus doesn't care or Jesus is just doing this. I told him, he deserves it. That's, he's just getting what he's asked for. No, Jesus cares. Just because we're in pain and discomfort or turmoil at that time doesn't skew that truth. Merima reacts with fear, anxiety, it hinders action, it loses a sense of priority, it focuses on self, and it divides faith. So Martha is not only anxious, but her anxiety had her lathered up about many things. Who's going to stir the pasta? Who's going to set the table? Mary's such a lazy person. And by the way, when is she going to get around, go to the store and buy that sugar that I need? One event and so many worries. Satan uses fear to divide and conquer our faith. Our agendas and our self-judgments cause us to become so self-absorbed and self-focused that we lose a sense of priorities, of spiritual priorities. We start ruminating about worst-case scenarios and what we set out to accomplish is waylaid. Literally, anxiety and fear causes us to, quote, go to pieces. That's the nature of the spiritual battle that we're in when worry and fear and getting into a troubled spirit goes on. That's a spiritual battle. We have to recognize we live in this plane where we're wrestling not against flesh and blood. Uh, I can relate to Martha. I can. You know, 20 years ago this time, I formally accepted a tenure as administrative pastor here at the church. And I'm, I'm not an administrator, but that's what they called me. So I'm this administrative pastor, and, and my job was to just focus on all of the day-to-day church life stuff. So that all of the different staff members had what they needed, were equipped, were resourced. And so that Pastor Lennon at that time could go and do and keep ahead running ahead, right? Because you can't have pastors getting bogged down in day-to-day details of church life. You've got to keep the vision out there, which is what I'm hearing is going on, is keeping the vision out there so we don't get bogged down. Amen, Joey? Preach it. Say preach, Joey. Preach it. There you go. <laughs> so absolutely. And I, I love my role. 
But one, and one of the things that I realized in that role was that, speaking of food, Dave, <laughs> right? Food, we like to eat. I learned that it was so much easier to work with all the staff and pull people together and accomplish events when food was present. There's just something about it. Yeah, yeah we're having a deacon's meeting. Yeah, we're going to have a deacon's meeting. We've got some good food, you know. So you know, oh, cool, I'll be there on time. It just is natural. And I started getting sucked into with some of that thinking into not only deacons meetings, but small group leaders meetings and ministry group leader meetings and this ministry and that ministry leader group meetings and newcomers chat meetings and special events and fundraisers and chili cook-offs and, and it just went on and on and on and, and asked my wife, she'll tell you, I spent a lot of time at Walmart and Gordon Foods getting food around. And here's the thing, now I always had help. People are always willing to help me out. That wasn't the issue, but Pastor Lyndon didn't want any more people over there in the kitchen, especially like a meal after church, than what needed. He didn't, he didn't want five, ten people over there. So I had to organize and prepare in such a way so that food could be largely prepared before the service and then ready to go after the service, and just maybe a few of us. And I don't see Dave Bostick here, but God bless Dave Bostick, because, you know, and those of you who helped out in those days. Point being is I would have a plan, and I would have a focus, and you know what? I arranged those things so that just as few people over there that could need to be, and then and when, when church is out, all the food would be nice and hot and fresh, and everybody go, wow, man, this is good. You know, good job, Mark. Woo, way to go, dude. Yay. But you know what? Sometimes what happened, they'd be in here having church, and my food was ready to go, baby. I mean, the garlic bread was nice and popping hot, and I, where'd the people at? Ah, oh, they're in there, they're having a ministry up to time, the Spirit's really moving, and people are getting saved, baptized, filled with Holy Ghost, that doesn't end up speaking in tongues, and all this good stuff. Get them over here! You know, my garlic bread is getting cold! Come on! Let's go! I found myself at times getting impatient with Pastor Lyndon because he knew I got food over there for all the people. And it's 10, 12, 10... 12.15, oh, now, now the spaghetti noodles are going to go wacko on me. So I know how many of us can identify with that, that feeling, whereas in contrast, mellow care is the genuine care and love for God that causes us to act with reason and empathy to alleviate a problem. Jesus brings order into chaos. This is how Jesus is responding to Martha. And he, Jesus understood that if Martha stopped foca focusing on her natural person and focused on her spiritual person, she would be fed the best food of all. Mellow care addresses what is needed. It prioritizes, it evaluates the course of action. 
it clears up misunderstandings, and it restores. Martha was simply to go over to Mary and say, hey, Mary, move over. I got to get things ordered in my life. And you know what? How we start out ordering our lives and prioritizing correctly? We make Jesus the best thing, the first thing. Amen. We get our priorities because then as we make Christ the best thing, the first thing, and our priority, the rest starts to flow in terms of timing and the job getting done. Most of anxiety is simply a reflection of our attempt and desire to control what we cannot control. The irony is the more we attempt to control things in our lives, the more that, that the more control fear and anxiety has over us. So when we're worried, Jesus is calling us to come sit at his feet. What is this one thing Jesus is referring to? We get a hint of this in Genesis 2.2, where it says, And on the seventh day God rested. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I mean, you're reading the Bible, and God's creating the world, all the universe, and then the seventh day, and God rested. Oh, wow, that must have been hard work, huh, God? God's tuckered out. God's tired. God's got to go take a nap. <laughs> no, no, not at all. The Hebrew word rested could be used to ind indicate fatigue, but in this context, it simply means to cease or stop. In other words, God was working, and then he stopped. In verse 3, he goes on to pronounce the Sabbath day holy, which is meant to set apart or sanctify. Why doesn't the Bible simply tell us about the creation and leave it at that? Of all the different patterns God could have set by example, he sets this one for man. That's what God is doing when he rested on the seventh day. He's setting a pattern for us. And in doing so, he sends two noticeably clear messages. One, man needs to rest. And two, rest comes from spending time with God. The, all, the infinite, all-powerful God we serve created children who have limited resources and we're finite. We're dependent. God, in his wisdom, created a Sabbath rest for his children to take a break and spend time with him. Through this honoring relationship with Abba Father, his children are refueled and re-energized to continue in the work set before him. And that's what Mary knew. And just in closing, in the last line there from this passage, it says, Jesus made this, this comment. He goes, and it will never be taken from her. Mary has discovered what's best. She discovered the feet of Jesus. She discovered that rabbit, Sabbath rest. And, and not only was she maybe just taking a break from her work, but she was using that break to be refueled. You know, we can go on vacations and come back more tired from going on the vacation than we started out going on the vacation. Because if we don't include God, if we don't make our vacation a Sabbath rest, 
and bring the Lord into that vacation and make him a priority when we're taking our vacation. We miss the whole point of going on a vacation because rest doesn't come from going to Hawaii. Rest comes from the presence of the Lord and having the best first in our life. And then Jesus says, and it will never be taken from her. What does he mean by that? I don't know. But I like it. I really, really like it. There's something going on there that Jesus, knowing Mary, goes, she's got something, and none of y'all can touch it. Nothing in this life is going to touch it. So I looked. I looked. I, I read a number of commentaries and like, what does this mean? And I really didn't. I'm sure I could have exhausted more time trying to find someone to say, this is what it means, Mark. I didn't find that. But I did just a couple of things. Number one, uh, I was reading one, uh, one author, and she grew up in the Middle East. She grew up over like Lebanon. And her comment on this passage was, not, not only was Mary um, incredibly brave in terms of sitting down and kind of going against the, the stereotypes of that day, but she also was putting her own very reputation on the line. Because what she did for that culture at that time because this lady, having grown up you know, over in the Middle East, said th this is how the culture is. You would have brought, she would have brought shame upon herself and her family. Indeed, and I'm reading into this now, so bear with me. But I think that's part of why Martha was so upset. She's bringing shame upon me. She's bringing reproach upon my house. Remember, it's Martha's house. And my sister Mary, not only is she doing what she's doing for herself, but she's, she's bringing reproach upon me. And it could have well have been part of Martha's indignation. And I think Jesus knew that Martha was focused on him enough to say, I don't care if it brings reproach upon me or whoever else. I'm going to do, I'm going to seek out what's best. At no matter what the cost is to my reputation. And when we get to that place, people... I think Jesus says, there ain't nothing going to touch you because you just don't care about societal priorities or social niceties. You care only about what Jesus thinks about you. So that's one thing. The other thing that I'd like to close up in on in terms of she, it will never be taken from her is just this whole idea and I'm a hospice social worker by trade now. So I'm daily, weekly involved in people related to death and dying. And you know what? No one ever takes anything tangibly, physically with them when they go. They just don't. I know from experience. I've seen it. I've observed it. But one thing they do take with them 
is what they believe in the most. That's what they do, Christian. What you believe in the most is what you take with you when you breathe out your last breath. And so this call this morning is, is what is that one thing that you trust and hope and believe in above all else? Because that's going to be leading you as you leave this life when you go. This one thing that's the most important. You take that belief with you. And so every morning, as I get out on the Route 4 and head north up to Marysville, I say, Lord, once again this morning, I hang my hat on the one thing that I can do. Jesus Christ crucified for my redemption. That one thing. And my prayer is, I, you know, Jesus spoke it over Mary. It'll never be taken from her. My prayer is this morning that God is up in heaven. And I believe this, that he can say that over me and over us. However you want to word and nail, boil down to that ultimate belief is that one thing that can't be taken from you. Jesus Christ crucified for my redemption. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're just reminded to once again make you preeminent. And as much as we can focus ourselves on what is best. And I thank you that we can have the hope this morning that through all of life's complexities, aches and pains and disappointments, the wounds, through all of these different challenges that Satan would want to use to distract us, to get us to fall to pieces mentally and emotionally, to be troubled and worried about so many things, I thank you that you have a place for us in your presence, at your feet, where we can prioritize and reorder our life and walk in confidence that even though life can be scary, you'll walk with us through the scariness. Where there's pain, you will walk with us as we strive towards healing. Where there's disquietedness, you walk with us to where there's peace. I thank you there is a place at your feet, the very feet that we heard about last Sunday that will crush the enemy. And I thank you for that place. God, give us the wisdom to bring this into every day for our lives.
and that it will never be taken from us. Amen.